Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Michael McKee, why don't you bring in our esteemed guest, who uh, it really has focused on trade in China, what did and what did not happen on the president's trip? Well, I think you just uh, you put it very well. I mean, with apologies to former Attorney General Eric Holder, the news has been fast and furious this morning. Um, lots of things going on uh, in the wake of the president's trip through the Middle East and uh, around the world, the coup underway in Zimbabwe. I guess we'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, there's some breaking news here out of China that they're sending an envoy to North Korea after um, the president's uh, stop in China. Now, in th- the announcement from the Chinese, they say that they're sending somebody to brief them on the five-year uh, party Congress, which is a normal thing. But the timing of it suggests that there may be a connection. Richard Haas, of course, is the um, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, and uh, you've held every diplomatic post. Of, you probably flew on Air Force 342 because you outrank me. <laughs> A few times. Uh, look, I, I think it's unlikely, shall we say, that the Chinese envoy is going to uh, Pyongyang to talk about the, the 19th Party uh, Congress. It's almost certain that they're there to talk about the basic issues of North Korea, and it comes against the backdrop of an extraordinarily strained relationship. Though in the last few weeks, there's been a couple of positive signals diplomatically and things said. So my hunch is that... Uh, you know, I, I don't know the substance of what the Chinese are going to raise, but uh, but I expect they're going to urge the North Koreans to show certain kinds of restraint, possibly to agree to some kind of a temporary freeze on on testing. I think that's the uh, that's clearly in the air. And the North Koreans will say what? Well, again, you know, the North. You know, sorry to sit here and say I don't know. North Korea is the hardest single intelligence target out there. It's one man, and it's it's opaque. Uh, you know, you know, everything in life is in exchange for what? So my hunch is they might be open to certain types of uh, limits on testing. The real question is what they're going to demand. Up to now, the Chinese has said they demanded an end to U.S.-South Korean military exercises. That's not in the cards. The question is, could you have a freeze for something else? That's a, that's, that's a worthwhile thing. And President Trump suggested at least the possibility of some diplomacy. So I take all this as a little bit of a positive sign. I'm not predicting success, but at least there's something finally being talked about other than either living with a North Korea that could blow us to smithereens or going to war. That's not the first part is not my preference. Just to be on the record, on there. the record, I'm glad we clarified that. Uh, your, your listeners wanted more, when, more reassurance. Uh, as a diplomat, do you pay much attention to the public statements of either the president or the North Koreans? We note on the trip, Donald Trump basically suggested Kim Jong Un is short and fat, and today the North Koreans announced that Donald Trump has been wait, sentenced wait, 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 to wait, death. John Tucker said that to me yesterday, right? <laughs> Not sure. I didn't say short. I did not say short. (laughs) One out of two. One out of two. But the North Koreans today said that uh, Donald Trump has been sentenced to death for insulting the Supreme Leader. I take these things somewhat seriously because it creates a context in which it makes it much harder, among other things. Just say tomorrow. There was an incident involving American B-1 bombers or the, you know, you've got three carrier task forces in the Pacific. And just say there was some kind of an incident between U.S. and North Korean forces. The idea that these two governments against this backdrop could manage uh, an incident so it didn't escalate into a crisis, they, you'd have to be an optimist uh, to think that. So, I do, uh, yeah, I do take these things seriously. Within that, 
is where was Secretary Tillerson? You and I talked about this an hour ago, but let's redux it again. It's so important. Is this president so dominant that cabinet officers just shrink when you're on these trips? Look, one Several secretaries of state in the past, I know, didn't like traveling with the president because the secretary of state, who's normally a senior official, when yeah. you travel with the president, you're reduced to being staff. The president is the the voice of, okay. of the United States. So Secretary Tillerson has played a, a secondary uh, role here and, in my own view, has made the mistake of this fixation with restructuring and downsizing the State Department at a moment that uh, I would think the diplomatic demands on the United States uh, well, argue just the opposite. Does your colleague Shannon O'Neill say the State Department has someone on the Venezuela watch, or are we blind? Well, the senior career person at the State Department now is a gentleman named Tom Shannon. He's the undersecretary, and his background is in Latin America. So what I don't know is how much uh, Mr. Tillerson or anyone else is listening to Ambassador Shannon, but he actually knows about the issue. Now that we have uh, uh, go on to Venezuela again in a second, but I just want to um, do the other countries on the trip all in one question. Uh, Naturally, for Donald Trump, the trip was the greatest presidential trip ever made, according to his tweets. But from a distance, um, when you look at what he did in each country, uh, what did the U.S. get out of it? Very little. Uh, And I think the biggest when historians write about this trip. The lead paragraph is going to be that the United States once again marginalized itself on what is the most important uh, dynamic in the region, which is the growth of uh, multilateral trade. And so you had the president going after trade agreements, talking about America first. That, to me, is the the big mistake, but also the lead story of the trip. Mike McKee, Michael from Denver emailed me this morning and said Trudeau got it right, and we didn't with Duterte. Yeah, um, it's simple. Uh, I, the, Tom asked you the question on uh, on Bloomberg Surveillance TV about how do you go to a country and tell the leader of the country while you're there that uh, his human rights record is dismal, and President Trump did not do that, but um, Justin Trudeau did. Well, again, you had two options. It seems to me, if you had to go to the country for a multilateral meeting, there was no, not there's nothing that forced you to have a bilateral meeting. But if you decide to have a bilateral meeting, you've got to use it publicly and privately. You've got to make the case about values because you're not just dealing with this individual. You're dealing with the public and the society. I predict the day will come when the Philippine people will turn on Mr. Duterte. And it's really important that the United States not be seen as having been complicit with him during the era of his rule. Let's uh, let's quickly talk about Venezuela since Tom brought it up. Uh, Russia is going to restructure its deal with the Venezuelans uh, because, of course, the Venezuelans uh, this week default in default, according mm-hmm. to uh, uh, those who follow the bond market. Um, does it mean anything that Venezuela is in default and can't pay their bills anyway? Uh, and a larger question: I was I, I've been in South America a couple times this year, and, and every country the leaders that I meet with tell me they don't really care. Venezuela is so isolated now that what happens there is not an issue for them. I disagree. What, what's happening that affects all the other countries more than anything else now are massive refugee flows. One of the unreported, underreported stories of the region is that Venezuela is hemorrhaging people. Hundreds of thousands of people now have already left, and these numbers are growing by the day. I assume Colombia and other countries nearby? This will affect uh, Brazil, yeah. other countries. So, right, so Venezuela, this will be a way in which it will affect everybody else. It's obviously a drag on the regional economy. What I think you're going to have is continued Russian and, above all, Chinese restructuring. 
restructuring, whatever else they call it, uh, of debt and probably the extension of, of, of new debt because Venezuela can't go into international markets because of the, the economic sanctions. So I think they're increasingly going to become uh, a, uh, a subsidiary, if you will, of, of both China and Russia. cover Harvard football. We're thrilled to bring you Harvard football on 106.1 FM in Boston and our affiliates, which means you miss Boston College losing to North Carolina State. North Carolina State having such a good year that if they take out UNC November 25th, they may get an invitation to the Gartman Bowl. We welcome now Dennis <laughs> Gartman uh, from, uh, do they go, to, do they, do, does your alma mater, do they, do they actually get a bowl invitation this year? Oh yeah, absolutely. They at seven and three already. They're they're bowl eligible. Heck, everybody yeah. once you win six games becomes bowl eligible. So <laughs> we'll <laughs> we're seven and three. We'll probably yeah. it'll be a very good game yeah. this weekend against <clears throat> Wake Forest. But hopefully, we shall beat the USC yeah. Peters in two weeks. So that's the big game. The charm of Gartman, folks, is unlike so many. He publishes in bold with yellow highlighter <laughs> his trades. I want you to explain when you're correct on a trade, you yeah. add to it as you go down. This is called anti-Martingale theory. Most people don't do that. So what do you do with an equity market that Gartman has gotten right for at least a few days? <laughs> well, as of right, first of all, the most important thing to remember in the, in the realm of trading is the great traders don't add to losing trades ever. They add to winning trades. If you bought something at $10 a share and it goes to 15 you buy more. If it goes to 20 okay. you buy more. If it goes to 25 you buy more because the market's telling you you're right. If you buy something right. at $10 a share and it goes to 5 the market's telling you okay. you're wrong. Why should you buy more? I, I have to interrupt. This is absolutely paramount, folks. Good morning, Ed Thorpe up at MIT. This is called anti-Martingale theory. And it is the number one mistake people make trading. Continue, Dr. Yeah. Gartman. Yes, well, as of this morning, uh, I've wanted to be, I've not been bullish of stocks for some while. Let's be bluntly honest about it. I've, I've looked towards the stock market with a great deal of antipathy. And I think that something has happened in the course of the past several days. It matters not which market you look at, whether you look at Germany's market, the UK's market, Canada's markets, the Shanghai index, Hong Kong stocks, Japanese stocks, or our stocks. All of them are now breaking well-defined upward-sloping trend lines and doing it definitively and beginning to do it on volume. I think something has happened here. Mm -hmm. I think we're at least shifting into a material correction to the downside. We might even be moving towards the, the hallmark or the starting point of a bear market. But let's just say yeah. that the bull market, I think, has come to a, an abrupt halt. And, Mike, and Michael, me, Bob Sinch moments ago talking about oil cracking. Um, yeah. But it has have equity markets? Would you say equity markets have cracked? You said we could see a bear market. Um, are we going to see an abrupt fall off, or are we just going to see a grind lower? And let me throw into this mix the question of if the U.S. does tax reform, does that break the fever? Well, first of all, the tax reform certainly has been well anticipated. Markets' jobs are to discount the future. And anything less than an overt uh, cut in taxes for every taxpayer across the board, plus a cut in business taxes, would be a disappointment. The market has anticipated great news on the tax front. And whether we shall get that or not is another story. 
If you don't get it, it's manifestly bearish. If you only get a partial tax cut, it's probably modestly bearish. So we see what kind of move lower? Violent well, or, uh, or, or just slowly grinding down as people work out the froth? If, Mike, if you, if you get the direction right, regardless of how the direction occurs, you've done a great job. Whether it happens quickly and violently yeah. or whether it happens in a grinding fashion is another story for another time. I shall simply go on record as saying I think the highs have been seen for the interim. Certainly we'll see 5 or 7% lower. We'll see what happens after that. Yeah. In all likelihood, it'll be a slow grind downward. That's what I hope it shall be, because yeah. nothing is worse than violent, violent breaks to the downside. One way to summarize that, folks, is the media spends a huge amount of time on the y-axis looking at changes in the pros like Mr. Gartman and others. Uh, look at the x-axis about the whenness of it. It's so hard to predict. With us, David Rosenberg of Luskin Chef. We've, of course, been parsing inflation. But, David, you write of the G4 debt bubble. Reinhardt and Rogoff combined public and private debt. How does David Rosenberg link visible public debt with the challenge of trying to figure out private debt as well? Well, I mean, the way that I uh, put this all together, really, from a market's perspective, is how the when I think of the G4, I'm actually thinking of the G4 central banks and the fact that even today, uh, you know, with the Fed starting its taper and, and uh, or actually it's unwind and uh, the ECB starting its taper, we still have a situation on our hands where $15 trillion of this debt that you're talking about, uh, and remember the other side of the balance sheet is that these are also assets, uh, that these central banks still have on their balance sheets over $15 trillion dollars. Of financial assets on their balance sheet. That's why when you're looking at why we've had this unbelievably surreal period of ultra low volatility, uh, no sellers in the market, um, uh, you know, the calm over the past 12 months that we've never seen before across most asset classes. Uh, a lot of it comes down to the fact that um, uh, th that uh, we've had this uh, unreal liquidity situation, courtesy of the central banks, uh, large uh, of their balance sheets. And I think at the margin, this is what might be coming to an end right now. Uh, you know, people are wondering, you know, what's happening this morning? Uh, you know, taking a look at the stock markets. And I mean, this was starting in the high yield market several weeks ago when they started to, uh, the spread started to widen out, that you're starting to see at the margin uh, this liquidity story starting to move in the other direction. Uh, and so I think that, um, you know, and of course, at the same time, look what's happening in China right now in terms of what's happening in their bond yields uh, have started to move up. They're up 100 basis points so far this year. Mm -hmm. So the big story here really is that uh, at the margin, um, liquidity growth, uh, not liquidity levels, but liquidity growth is starting to slow down. And that's starting to reflect itself in some uh, 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 subtraction of risk appetite right now. How much do we uh, lose in liquidity, though? It's been said the Fed is um, the ultimate free rider now because they can tighten rates while the European Central Bank and the Japanese are still pumping money into the global economy, so doesn't really show up in uh, financial conditions. Well, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, the question is, are you looking at levels? Are you looking at growth, Mike? So uh, the levels of liquidity are still going up uh, in terms of balance sheet action. But the growth rate is certainly changing. And financial markets don't respond to levels, they respond to change. So I would say that the liquidity landscape uh, is undergoing a shift uh, globally. 
Uh, and I said before, look, uh, you know, we could talk about all the QEs, what the BOJ is doing, what the ECB is doing. Well, Go back to the last time that we actually had a major spasm in the markets, Tom. It was back in early 2016, late 2015. Remember, the S&P went down 12% of that period. It felt a lot worse than that. Spreads widened out. We had a huge pullback in risk appetite. What did that come from? Well, partially came from the fact that the Fed tightened in December. We had the aftershocks of that into January. But remember, that was the same time period that we had the Japanese, uh, the Chinese renminbi being devalued, and that created a big knock-on effect. You know, one of the things you have to pay attention to is the importance of, of China here on global financial markets. And I haven't heard anybody talk about the fact that since the start of the year, uh, we've had uh, 10-year yields in China go up 100 basis points. If you're looking at inflation, by the way, there is inflation in China. And we know the last time we had a major correction in the global marketplace came out of China. And so as we're focused on tax reform in the United States and people are lamenting what's happening with inflation in the United States, they're missing a big story here, which is that not only are we seeing liquidity shifts growth-wise on G4 central bank balance sheets, um, but uh, market interest rates in China are starting to rise inexorably right now. Well, much of your forecast for what may happen in the coming year seems to center on what's going on in China. What, What do you see from them? Well, most of what I'm seeing in the next year isn't really coming from China. Uh, it's a, uh, I think the economy, they are slowing. Uh, there's a, a shift, again, towards services away from goods production. Uh, but we do know that they have an enormous debt load, and it's very unstable. And, uh, and of course, what is the implications of having market rates go up? It's not just, uh, you know, government bond yields. Yeah. But market rates have gone up to a three-year high. So all of a sudden, mm. the big risk in China is going to be a default story as debt service costs go up. What is the reverberating impact that's going to have globally? All I'm saying is that, you know, usually the whole consensus and everybody's conversation is usually not looking at, uh, at, at what's really happening. We're all looking at it in a certain direction when the big story could be in China right, right. now. Just as it was in early 2016, people wondering what's going on here. Well, that came out of China, and that was their currency. Now what's happening is the bond market in China is starting to unravel a little bit, and that could be also having some impact on risk uh, risk appetite globally at the current time. Uh, And again, the tape rolling over, negative 162 now on the Dow. That's, I believe, a new low for the day. David Rosenberg, a Gluskin chef with us. David, to link this into the equity markets, and one of my themes for next year is a Jack Welch theme, which is pricing power. Are we at a point linking in Rosenberg's inflation dynamics where all of a sudden it's a redux, we're at the top line? Even if I have unit growth, I've got disinflation or actual declines in pricing power for corporations. Is that a theme for next year? Well, I think that's it's one of the themes. I think, I think another theme is going to be one of change. I think we're going to have change in, in central banks. By definition, we're going to have new leadership and, and uh, at the Fed. Uh, we're replacing, when you count in, depending on what Janet Yellen does, uh, Yellen, Dudley, Fisher, we're, we're, we're cashing in 35 years of combined monetary policy experience, and we're getting five years uh, with Jerome Powell. We have a new Fed, and that will be a new untested Fed. Uh, we're going to have new leadership at the ECB. Uh, and so I think at the margin from a central bank policy perspective, things are going to change. I think that could have an impact on the multiple, uh, not necessarily just on earnings. We're going to have a situation where um, we're going to be talking about the midterm elections in the United States most of next year. Will, will, the, will the House go Democrat? Uh, and uh, that's going to unleash a whole other round of uncertainty. Uh, so, uh, you know, my sense is that it's going to be a year where uh, we're going to have a much more two-way traded flow, a year of heightened volatility. And, uh, you know, when you're talking about a Ford multiple of 18 okay. and a trailing of 22, this market is more than fully okay. valued. I want to circle back then to Michael McKee, all-knowing. Kevin Cirilli, a million hours ago, talked about December 8th. 
Is David Rosenberg, Michael McKee, going to be writing about a government shutdown? Really? They could uh, certainly. How does that happen? About a government shutdown. I mean, the, the funding for the government, the continuing resolution that funds the government, it expires December eighth, so they have to pass something new, and. Uh, right now, Republicans and Democrats are a long way away on issues, and Democrat, th- this is not one they can do with a majority vote. They need 60 votes, so they've got to uh, get some Democratic votes in the Senate, and right yeah. now it looks like um, there's some irreconcilable irre- differences between the two. Well, for those of you worldwide that have been following us, it's been an interesting discussion with David Rosenberg. J.J. Uh, tweets in David Rosenberg with some hockey guy named LaFleur where Guy Lafleur says the Montreal Canadiens have no first line, second line, third line. I think they have four fourth lines. <laughs> Guy Lafleur is brutal, isn't he? Uh, well, you know, you, you, you talked about Larry Robinson and um, and and uh, Serge Savard before. I think I I, I would I, I wish those guys would uh, even at their age lace up the skates and head on the ice for yeah, us. Down the blades and hit the ice. David Rosenberg, thank you so much with Glasgow you know, Chef. This is an anniversary. Today, in 1934, Mariner Eccles was appointed as chairman of the Fed. This this just in from the Minneapolis Fed, which sends out these interesting reviews. The banker from history. Um, So beginning a remarkable career. Important career. First draft choice of the Federal Reserve in 1934. He's the guy who did a Jimmy Stewart and stood on the the bank... uh, stood up in his bank yeah. and yelled, more money's on the way. Yeah. Well, on the almost. counter to ease the customer's yeah. concern. But, they, right. but, but seriously, the, the, we all know it started in 1912, but Eccles along the way to McChesney Martin is one that really made it happen. We thank David Rosenberg for too short a visit, and particularly on parsing of inflation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.